Let's travel the world together She can make it easy and in any kind of weather No TSA, no bad checks, no patting down She's talking from the skies and sending lives of feel-good sounds Oh, Betty, in the sky, have you heard her yet? She loves traveling, there's no doubt Betty and the Jets She's weird and wonderful Oh, Betty, she's a podcast queen She's wearing high heel shoes Got her wings on, too You know I've never seen a better stew Oh, Betty and the Jets Hello, and welcome to Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. I'm Betty. I'm a flight attendant for a major airline, and I bring you stories from airplane, from the flight attendants and pilots, and from traveling around the world. In this episode, we have stories about a pussy nose, cowboys, crotches, Egypt, window mojo, helium, and Borneo. Let's get on with the show. So this man rang his flight attendant call bell, and 95% of the time... It's nothing. They didn't even know they rang it. Like I, it goes something like this. Um, do you need something? You rang your flight attendant call bell and they go, what? I'm like, you rang your flight attendant call bell. Was it a mistake? It's usually a mistake. And they're like, yeah. Or they're still going, what? Anyway, this guy did ring it. And uh, I said, can I get you something? And he said, I'm in a lot of pain. And I was think. I said, um, what kind of pain? And I'm thinking, please don't say chest pain. I don't want it to be a heart attack. I don't want to get out the defibrillator. Please, 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 not chest pain. And he said, um, he looked strange. And he said, it's in my private area. And I was thinking, well, oh, mm, um, huh. I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to examine it. So I said, um, well, uh, would you like some Tylenol? You know, we try to fix everything with Tylenol and club soda. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, no, I, I don't think Tylenol is going to be strong enough. I said, well, I, I don't have a lot of options here, so we could page for a doctor if you want us to. And he said, no, I'll take the Tylenol and I'll let you know if it gets worse. And I was like, okay. I'm thinking, please don't want to get worse because I don't know what to do with a with a uh, crotch pain. <laughs> so I go get him the Tylenol, the water, and we didn't hear from him again, so hopefully... It got better, or he just decided to wait till he got back to the United States. But we were laughing in the galley like we do. Like, um, we could have made a PA. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if there is a medical professional, specifically a crotch doctor, a crotch doctor, please ring your flight attendant call button. <laughs> so I've been reading from my travel journals, and um, these are little stories, not the big stories, because the big stories I've already told on the podcast and in the book, uh, Betty and the Jets, The Adventures of a Traveling Fool. But these little stories, I would have forgotten about if I didn't write them down or write a little note. This is from Easter Island, uh, 2007. And I had just written like what I did each day so I could go back and write out the journal. And then lots of times I didn't. But this one said, had dinner with Jeanette and husband and son. Nice family I met on the tour. Then pus no sky. <laughs> It's hard to say pus nose guy. Then pus nose guy followed me and I met Carlos. (laughs) 
pus nose guy. So uh, I remember that. That's all I wrote. But I do remember I had dinner with those nice folks. And I was walking back to my cheap hotel. Didn't have any money at the time. And about, um, it was about like 12 blocks. And it was dark. And there was no one around. And this guy with crazy eyes and pus coming out of his nose started following me. And it was like, hmm. I didn't know if he was mentally challenged or on drugs, but he creeped me out. And I knew the last like seven blocks of the walk had no businesses or anything. So I was nervous with him following me. So I looked around and I saw a restaurant called Aloha. And I had already eaten dinner, but uh, I looked in and saw it had a bar. And I was like, aha, I'll stop in, I'll have a drink, and then maybe pus nose guy will go away and then I can just saunter on home. So uh, I sat at the bar and I talked to the bartender, which turned out to be the owner, Carlos, really nice guy. We had a nice chat and I was telling him, I'm like, some guy who seems to have a pussing nose problem and a little crazy eyes is following me. And I don't know, you know, if I should be worried. So that's why I stopped in here. So I'm hoping he won't be there when I go out. And he was like, Oh, I don't remember the guy's name now. But he was like, Oh, he does have a men- mental uh, disability. And he drinks too much. And he probably fell. And that's probably why he has pus coming out of his nose. But uh, he's harmless. So then I felt a lot better. And then I got to be friends with Carlos and I ate at his restaurant one night. I stopped in any number of times. And when I left Easter Island, he came to the airport and gave me a necklace. So sweet. It was really nice. And I enjoyed chatting with him. And I don't know if you remember this story, but I thought it was so funny at the time. At the time, in 2007, there were like 2,000 people on the island. I don't know how many are there now. But um, I had seen uh, a gay-looking waiter. He's uh, very flamboyantly dressed. And uh, I thought to myself, huh, I wonder how many gay people are on the island. And I wonder, you know. So I had asked Carlos, I'm like, hey, how many gay people are there on the island? They know everyone because there's not that many of them. And he said, uh, three. <laughs> I thought it was just so funny that he had a number right there, just nonchalant, three. And I was like, oh, I hope hope they like each other. The music for this show is an old Braniff International commercial, and it has to do with one of the stories coming up in this podcast in that uh, a friend of mine was talking about when he worked for his parents worked for Braniff, and we were talking about the uniforms and how they would wear this bodysuit with the space helmet that I've talked about before in the podcast. And that that, that bodysuit, there was like a skirt that went over it and like a jumper that went over it. And their ad was actually called the Air Strip. And it was talking about them stripping down till they get down to the bodysuit. And like, it's so unbelievably unpolitically correct. <laughs> You know, that that ad would not fly these days. But one of the funny things I want to talk about that is, so my friend was talking about how they were, Braniff wore these body suits. And uh, then he was talking about the commercial, the air strip. And for some reason, when he said air strip, I was hearing landing strip because, you know, they're very similar. And that's kind of what some people would call a certain um, way of... Uh, waxing your bikini line. And I was thinking about the bikini line and the bodysuit. And I was thinking he was saying the commercial was come see their 
landing strip, but it was <laughs> the airstrip. <laughs> it's all bad. When a Braniff International hostess meets you on the airplane, she'll be dressed like this. How did you get in the airline industry? Well, you know, I'd, I'd always wanted to be in the airlines. I was an airline brat. An airline brat? Yeah, both my parents worked for the airlines. So from the time I was a baby, I was flying. But my parents uh, worked for Braniff International, and they were um, a U.S. Uh, carrier that went bankrupt in 1982 because of bad business decisions. But there was a time when they were just like the ultimate as far as uh, design and 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 uh, uniform. I know they were really stylish, right? That was the is that the one with the um, the helmet? Yeah. Their flight attendants uh, wore uh, Pucci uniforms. One thing was a Pucci leotard uh, with a, a big plastic space helmet. Yeah, I love that one. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my aunt flew from Louisiana to Texas on Braniff one time, and uh, that was back in the 60s when they wore the, uh, uh, the bodysuit with the space helmet. And she goes, yeah, I flew Braniff. Some of them gals didn't belong in them bodies. <laughs> but it was it was funny because even as a as a child, my parents ended up uh, divorced, so I would shuttle back and forth um, between Houston and Shreveport. And I can remember walking through the terminal and seeing just as a little boy all these different airlines, and they all looked the same. It was all just you know red, white, and blue and very plain Jane, and uh, and then you would get to the Braniff ticket counter, and Braniff was big in South America, so everything was really colorful, and they used uh, um, a famous interior designer to make their fonts, and wow. design their gates, and the interiors of their aircraft, but, so it was, it was very stylish, their um, uh, meals, I just, uh, what I remember as a child was, I remember the first time having gazpacho and she brought the soup and I started eating it and I said this is cold <laughs> and she said it's supposed to be cold it's got spacho and okay and I ate it it was you know, and but you know a lot of people talk about how you know elegant Pan Am was right but from being a little kid growing up uh, and seeing you know Bernice International I thought they were you know, just the epitome of elegance. I always wanted to work for the airlines. And once I grew up, about 20, 21, and I started sending out applications. Right. Well, it was the early 80s, and regulations had taken hold, and no one was really hiring. I finally got a response for an interview, and I showed up, and it was for an airline called Pacific East Air. Pacific East Air. Pacific East Air, yeah. And it was in Los Angeles, which I lived in Los Angeles, so I went out for the interview, and even though I was kind of painfully shy, they hired me. Woohoo! And I went, started training, and I was all excited, and I knew it was a, it was a new airline, and uh, they weren't very big. They were, only had a few routes, but, you know, I was just happy to finally get hired. So they said, well, we're going to have two flight attendants come in today and, you know, talk to you. And these two women come in, and I'm thinking, 
why are they dressed like that? What were they dressed like? Cowgirls. <laughs> they had on these checkerboard shirts and cowboy hats and cowboy boots. And I'm like, what is this? Well, it turned out it was the uniform. Oh, my gosh. And so, you know, I wasn't expecting something like Braniff with Poochie or Halston. But I wasn't expecting to be wearing a cowboy suit either. <laughs> so they, uh, you know, it was, this was a fly-by-night operation. In the early 80s, they were allowing anyone who uh, wanted to to start an airline. And I suppose it was the cheapest way to put together a uniform. Did you wear, you wear the boots, too? Cowboy boots. And the hats? Jeans. Uh, yeah. Um, a checkerboard shirt and a cowboy hat. Long haul route. The, these planes didn't have um, any video or any movies. <laughs> so, you know, and they were all long flights from like LA to Honolulu to Kahului to uh, London with a stop in Gander. And so the in flight entertainment was in flight bingo. <laughs> <laughs> you passed out cards. And you called it over the PA, and uh, the winner got a bottle of Andre Champagne. And you and you played whether you wanted to or not. Oh, really? Over the PA. Oh, yeah. And um, and nobody wanted to call bingo. And I was the most junior flight attendant in the system, so I had to call bingo every single flight, and I just. I hated it. I really hated calling bingo. The funny thing was, well, while I was in training, I thought, okay, well, I've got this job. At least I'm in Los Angeles. Well, halfway through training, they said, surprise, we're opening a base in San Francisco. Right. You're all going to San Francisco. Oh. Immediately, the whole base was commuters, which is normal for flight attendants to commute. Luckily, I had a friend that lived in San Francisco, and he lived in the Castro District um, and uh, at 19th and Collingwood. So you had to get off the uh, Muni, the subway, to, uh, go all the way up Castro Street. It was kind of a long walk, but uh, at least I had a place to stay when right. I was flying. I would do these Honolulu turns out of San Francisco International or San Jose. And you'd go to Honolulu and back, and I'd get back, and I'd be exhausted, and I would have to take the airporter bus to Union Station and get on the Muni and take it to Castro Street Station. And I would get to Castro Street Station right at about 2 a.m. Oh. Right when the bars were letting out <laughs> on Castro Street. So <laughs> here I was, you know, 20, 21, uh, getting off Muni and walking up Castro Street in a cowboy suit <laughs> with my suitcase. And, <laughs> and it would have been funny if I wouldn't have been so painfully shy, but, but uh, it was quite an experience. I know, that's kind of like, yee-haw! So my new townhouse has a lot of windows, which is nice. It's an end unit, and um, I have windows on the side, a whole like, wall of windows in the back, a couple windows in the front, and it's two-story, and we get a ton of rain in South Carolina. So the windows get dirty, and um, it's expensive to have people come 
clean your windows. And uh, I do a lot of stuff myself. And I thought, huh. So I ordered on Amazon a giant telescoping pole um, for washing windows. Like it goes up to 24 feet. So theoretically, I can reach all the windows. But it came with these attachments, um, like a, uh, like the size of a hoagie, <laughs> uh, like microfiber thing with a um, squeegee on the other side. But that all sounds good. But when you so it basically like in the instructions showed you to use a big bucket, you put the microfiber hoagie thing in the bucket, you wash the windows, you squeegee it. But the thing is, then all that liquid goes down and then the bottom of the window is dirty. Um, it just didn't really work. And uh, like the inside I was doing the interior also, then you have a bunch of um, dirty glass cleaner at the bottom of your window. So I was like, well, this is like, a wah, wah, wah. got this giant pole and it doesn't work. So I, you know, thought, well, I'll try to jerry rig something at the end of this pole. So I used the, the hoagie microfiber thing, but um, it needed to be like bigger and fluffier. So I had these microfiber things that used to go on like a shark um, steamer device I used to have, but I still have those. And it's kind of like a little like pouch. So I put that over the hoagie looking thing. And then I stuffed another um, one of those mop things inside. So basically, I made a, a um, pillow at the end of this pole, uh, because the other thing just didn't, wasn't big enough. It wasn't, it didn't work. But anyway, now I got this pillow at the end of the pole, and I can clean all my windows. It's great. But it's a little dangerous <laughs> working with a giant pole. Um, it's, uh, the first thing I did was, um, I'm doing the ones inside and you got to, just like the people with the backpacks on the plane, you got to be aware of, you know, you're, you got to be spatially aware because they're always hitting other people with their backpacks and their bags. They're not paying attention to like what's behind them. Well, with a giant pole, <laughs> I knocked over the plant on my dining room table. So then I had dirt everywhere. And I'm like, here, I'm trying to clean the windows and I'm making a giant dirt mess in the in the main room. And then I go outside and I was kind of hoping uh, my neighbors wouldn't be around because here I am like to do the outside. I got to like telescope that pole like all the way out. So we're talking, this is like a, a, a giant pole. <laughs> I mean, giant with a pillow at the end. Well, my one neighbor has this cute little fluffy white dog. Well, that dog was barking at me like the house was on fire. Because here I have this giant pole and a pillow at the end. And that dog was like, <laughs> so like every, every neighbor came out <laughs> to witness um, my, uh, my strange large pole behavior. But luckily I didn't because I was afraid I'd knock something over outside or break a window or something. But my windows looked fantastic. A little bit of an update to my long pole with the pillow at the end shenanigans. <laughs> I was able to find a regular mop, uh, like a wet dry mop that you can flip around that will screw into that long pole so it's not quite as embarrassing. So my name's Ann Swanberg and I'm co-founder of Life Place Improv. Why did I start Life Place? What does improv have to do with work? Well, I was teaching in theaters and people would say, 
man, I wish work was like this. And what was the this? That people were having fun, they were connecting, they were listening to each other, and they were moving forward. The skills that you learn in improv are absolutely applicable to work. Life Plays is the name we gave the business, and we take the skills of improv into companies. We worked with all sizes of companies. Our website, check us out, is lifeplays.com, L-I-F-E-P-L-A-Y-S.com. All right, everybody, life is here to enjoy it, and improv skills definitely help with enjoying life on the move. I did an interview. I'm going to be in the podcast magazine, like a little spread, uh, a few pages, which is very exciting. I'll let you know when that comes out. Probably not for a while yet, but uh, I get certain things in um, emails. And, uh, you know, some things, uh, it's like nothing and other things you find interesting. But one of the things, they're always, they're always pitching things to me now, which is not how it's always been. When I say pitching things, pe- people are writing me or publicists are writing me to pitch their person to be on my podcast, but they've never listened to the podcast, most likely, because they're pitching me aviation specialists and people to talk about travel post-COVID, and it's just not, not, I'm just not that kind of show. But I, I, I do look through things just in case it's something interesting, like that uh, being in Podcast Magazine. And one thing, I don't even remember for what it was for, but it said, Dear Miss Skye. <laughs> Dear Miss Sky, oh, and then the the photo for this podcast was sent to me by Nick the Traveler, and there is a plane, a jet blue plane called Betty Blue, and on the plane it says, "Welcome aboard, Betty Blue." When she brings you your dinner, she'll be dressed this way. We were talking about faux pas, you know, like things you do are wrong, and you, you had no, you had good intentions, just turn out kind of disastrous. My mother, when she was not well and she was elderly and we had her like living in a in a little house in Florida with a caretaker and I'd get these long, I was in Los Angeles at the time and I'd get these long layovers and I'd rent a car and my mother liked shrimp and like we were growing up, we didn't have any money and shrimp was like a, you know, it was like a delicacy. It was like, it was too expensive. So I would stop and get like these like most ridiculously big, expensive shrimp at this specialty place. And then I, you know, make a salad and a vegetable. And I was doing that like on a regular basis. But then I was thinking, you know, I should get something else. And she likes fish and she probably never had sushi. Might be something different, you know, something exciting. So I got a couple kinds of sushi with the salad and I think I made like cream spinach and my sister who lived down there was over for dinner and we're having a nice conversation and I look over and my mother had thrown up the sushi like all over her face and hadn't said anything she probably didn't want to like ruin the party but I had like poisoned my elderly <laughs> sick mother <laughs> oh, God. that's pretty bad it was, it was pretty bad you know, I had, I had a, a friend kind of uh, have the same thing happen. You know, and people are funny about fish. Right. Especially about sushi or caviar or anything that's, you know, got a really heavy fish, you know, fish yeah. flavor. Um, I love anything uh, fishy, like, you know, sushi and sashimi and all those things. But this friend of mine, she was very elegant from, you know, the East Coast. Um, her kids all went to, you know, Catholic boarding schools, and and uh, her husband had uh, worked for a big 
international company and they'd gone down to live in Brazil and so when they were down there they were invited to all these uh, very elegant parties and one of the parties the hostess served uh, caviar right and my friend although you know she grew up with lots of money she had very kind of american sensibilities and a lot of americans don't eat caviar right and so she was served the caviar and she thought oh caviar okay you know and so she's trying to you know be game and 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 eat it she took one bite of it <laughs> and she thought she was going to be ill so here she's got this blini or cracker or something and and it's loaded with caviar and she's well, what am i going to do with it so the hostess had a dog, and of course, like most dogs, it was under the table, so she just kind of surreptitiously put her cracker under the table right. with the caviar on it to feed it to the dog. Right. So, Smart. So that she could be rid of yeah. the caviar. And so she, the, the dog takes it, and you know she thinks she's off scot-free, and all of a sudden the hostess is like going, Ruffy, what's wrong? What's wrong? <laughs> It's under the table, throwing up. <laughs> it totally ruined the dinner party because all of a sudden, you know, in the middle of the caviar course, the dog is down there barfing. But... This is a short entry from my trip to Borneo in November 2009. Off on a new adventure. Borneo has always held an exotic appeal for me. Maybe it's the orangutans or the whole heart of darkness jungle, but it's always been on my list. I set off on a really long journey. First stop, Narita. The flight was an hour late, which made me concerned about my hour and a half connection to Singapore. I got business class, which makes everything better. Isn't that true? I got basically first class. I got first class, which makes everything better. I was actually on the upper deck of a 747, which is even more exciting. Good food, even better wine, four movies, and you're in Tokyo. So I ran and ran when I got to Tokyo, and I made that connection to Singapore. I ate a little bit of the first class meal, watched half of Wolverine, and slept the rest of the way to Singapore. I had tried to book a hotel at the airport, but they were full, so my options were 13 hours at the airport or a $200 hotel, and I opted for the airport hanging out, hoping that a room at the airport would uh, become available. Actually, if you have to waste a lot of time in an airport, Singapore is the one to do it in. They have a swimming pool, showers, free internet... Uh, food, of course, TV lounges, a movie theater. It's like it's his own city. I only waited one hour and a room at the airport opened up. I'm a lucky girl. The next day, I got up and had some lovely chicken, chicken tikka marsala at the airport. Got my boarding card right away. Love Malaysia Airlines. They still serve food. I had emailed the Lime Tree Hotel from the free internet at Singapore and they picked me up smooth sailing. I went to the waterfront and laughed at all the cat statues. Kuching, which is the name of the city, means cat in Chinese. I wandered into a noodle house full of locals. I had a great meal at the Hong Kong noodle house. I looked around the large restaurant, noticing I was the only blonde. That would be the theme for the trip. Borneo is nicer than I imagined. Clean, nice people, cheap, good food, civilized. I like it. I took a shuttle, which was on time, clean, and cheap. Gotta love Asia. 
I got to the Permai and was told that my treehouse wasn't ready and I had to wait till 2 p.m. to check in. No problem. I walked to the cultural center and watched a local show. The audience was as exotic as the performers. I loved all the little Muslim girls and their headscarves. I checked into my treehouse and, wow, fantastic, a treehouse facing the South China Sea at canopy level, and the room was nice and big. I am a lucky, lucky gal. I took the jungle trail uh, on the grounds that afternoon. I found a troop of monkeys, but the trail was challenging, more so than I would have thought. Lots of scrambling and ropes and rope bridges. It started to rain, which made everything harder. It gets so hot in the forest, your body just becomes a fountain and you get filthy, but it was fun. (laughs) Oh, I forgot. At breakfast at the lime tree, the only thing I recognized was papaya. All the other stuff, it was like all dried fish and weird things, but it was good. I loved sleeping in the treehouse, except there was some insect or bird that sounded like an alarm. It sounded just like an alarm clock. I woke up like 15 times. Then I had breakfast and there were sea otters. I could see sea otters at breakfast. Sea otters. I want to thank any of you who were so, so kind when you were going to buy something on Amazon. You took a few seconds, went to my website, bettingthesky.com. It doesn't cost you anymore. It supports the show. And I like to see what people buy. Uh, Somebody this month bought a two-pound bag of bananas, uh, an American flag and eagle nightlight, and a book called The Two Faces of January. So thank you so much if you consider going to my website, bettingthesky.com, and I thank you so, so very much. After dinner on those long flights, she'll slip into something a little more comfortable. This story comes from Anne at lifeplays.com. Yeah, my friend Peggy was a flight attendant um, back in the early 70s. And she said she was pretty new at the job, just 22, right out of college, I think. And I guess Las Vegas was known for being fairly turbulent on the landing. Peggy was in her jump seat or regular seat, you know, next to this other flight attendant who was even newer than Peggy. The other flight attendant got out her rosary and started doing her Hail Marys. And Peggy said to her, uh, I don't think that would go over very well with keeping the, you know, passengers calm. <laughs> so, all right. <laughs> well, yeah, praying on the jump seat doesn't exactly convey confidence. The airstrip is brought to you by Braniff International. This is from September 23rd, 2008. Off to Egypt alone. I want to see the visual history that is Egypt. My plan for the first day was stalled by Ramadan. I stayed at the nice Hilton since it's next door to the museum, but it it closed early due to the fasting holiday. I took a long walk along the Nile only to be reminded of the barrage of mail and tip seekers attention that no one wants. This trip may be an interesting adventure alone as a blonde American woman in Egypt. September 25th, off to the pyramids, early, and it was remarkable as you might expect. I took my time and walked all over having to say no to a hundred camel drivers. Since 
I was not crazy about Cairo, I decided to forego the museum and head to Luxor. It was a good call because Luxor is much more impressive and less crazy. I got an amazing deal at the Old Winter Palace for $58 a night, including breakfast. It's a stunning old hotel and grounds. I'm the youngest one here. I saw the Luxor Temple at night and had dinner overlooking the Nile. Awesome! But this country is not ideal for solo travel because everyone is on a tour, so the the locals are coming at me like locusts. Locusts! (laughs) September 26, I took a horse and buggy to Kanak and two museums, always being bugged by the locals. Now I am at the lovely old Winter Palace pool having an expensive beer in a bucket of ice. Booze is really hard to come by here during Ramadan, so... If you can have a drink, you should have a drink. I decided to venture out, even though conventional wisdom would lean toward being a hotel hugger. Man, men stop me in cars, on foot, on horse and buggy. It's always the same. They say the same things. Where are you from? I'm your Omar Sharif. You have Egypt eyes, and the best one, you walk like an Egyptian. This next bit comes from Steve, who is so good at sending me stuff. It's a commercial for an airline. Hi, I'm Richard Bartram with WestJet's communication team. We're here in our Calgary hangar facility, and in the background here you see one of our 737-800 series aircraft. We have an exciting new initiative that launches today, and I'd like to tell you a little bit more about it. Effective today, on all our aircrafts, we'll be introducing helium to the air mix to make those planes lighter. So come on along with me, and I'll tell you a bit more about it. As Canada's low-cost airline, we're always looking for innovative ways to make sure that we can pass savings on to our guests. And the announcement today is no exception. What we're doing is putting helium on board all the aircraft, making them lighter. Come on aboard, let's take a look. Hey, sir. Hi, Richard. The science behind all of this really is quite simple. Helium is 85% lighter than nitrogen, and of course nitrogen makes up more than 80% of the air we breathe. So by introducing helium into the air mix on board the aircraft, we can make the plane lighter. So you're going to see air coming in, of course, through the vents here, air coming in through the vents down here, and that air will be mixed with helium. And for a plane that weighs more than 150,000 pounds at takeoff, anything we can do to make the plane lighter means we burn less fuel. And if we're burning less fuel, that means you're sitting down here, relaxing, you're saving money. And so why don't you just sit back, relax, and let the helium do the work. Ladies and gentlemen, happy April Fools! Please look below for your April Fools savings. Thanks for flying with us, and have a great day. believes that even an airline hostess should look like a girl. I find this to be just curious, strange, odd. <laughs> I have bad window mojo. That's right. I bet you've never heard that. You know, there's all those podcasts out there. I bet they're not talking about bad window mojo. I have. So I have had five window car windows fall down on me. When I say fall down, it's like the motor brakes. The first one was in my old Volkswagen Beetle, my yellow Volkswagen Beetle that I, I did. Now, granted, I tend to keep my cars a long time. So I'm always driving an oldish an old or an oldish car, just because I like to spend money money on traveling. We all like to spend money on different things. So um, in my Volkswagen, the the window um, fell down, and then I couldn't get it to go back up, and then it fell all the way down. And so then uh, 
I didn't know where to take it. And it was an old car. And then I was like, um, should I, it was going to be very expensive for some reason in that Volkswagen to get that window fixed. And they had to order a part. And while we're doing all that, I was afraid because I parked out in a parking lot in the marina in that place that I lived. Um, I was afraid like some animal would get in there or, you know, when it rains. So I would park it under the bridge and walk home. And during that time, the other window fell down. And so um, I eventually just sold the car because I think it was going to be like $1,200 each window and the car was already old. And But I'll tell you, it's loud when you're driving with the windows down. So then I got my new car uh, and I only had it for about three years. And that window, my driver's side window fell down. And I was like, this is my third window that is falling fallen down. But that one was in under warranty. So I went and got that fixed. And um, just recently, <laughs> I moved into my new place with like a, a nice neighborhood. And um, my I was going to get a COVID test and uh, they told me to put my passenger window down, which I never even put down. And I heard a noise. And now that I've had a bunch of windows fall down, I was like, I think that window just went. Uh, it makes a noise and then it it, uh, it falls down and then you can't get it to go back up. And when you try to get it to go back up, then it could fall all the way down. So I didn't do that because I've had this happen before and I called it dealership. I knew I was going to have to pay for it, but uh, they had to go they had to order a part. So I was out in front of my new place and I'm taping plastic to where, because uh, I don't want it to get, I park outside. I don't have a garage. I don't want it to, to get all flooded. So I put plastic and I put a bunch of duct tape and uh, my neighbor came by and she was like, uh, what are you doing? And I'm like, my, my, my car window fell down and uh, I have to wait to get the part. Uh, and so I don't want it to get wet. And she goes, looks kind of ghetto. <laughs> yes, that's me with the, I'm the new neighbor with the ghetto car. And then I got that window fixed. And it wasn't like uh, two months later that the driver's side <laughs> fell down. And I was like, I must be doing something to these windows because they just won't stay up. And I end up driving around a ghetto car. But um, I did now get, they're both fixed. But uh, probably is time to start thinking about a new car. Well, that's about it for this episode of Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. I hope you'll join me again next time so we can travel around the world together. And hopefully, we really will be traveling around the world together. The airports are filling up. It's a good sign. Thanks. Bye. She's been and tell you where she's going. You'll have some fun, so why not come along? Seat belts are fastened for takeoff, and the signal is strong. Oh, Betty, in the sky, have you heard her yet? She loves traveling, there's no doubt. Betty and the Jets. Oh, she's with. Cat's queen She's wearing high heels